This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. You are listening to the Get Booked feed where we are doing a whole big experiment thing. This is a special, unplanned, but very exciting, at least to me, bonus episode about algorithms. I am Jen Northington. I'm coming to you from Book Riot. And I am here with special guest Emily Pullen from the New York Public Library. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. (laughs) Welcome to Get Booked, sort of. (laughs) I'm very happy to be here. Very excited. Yeah. So I will explain now a little bit about how this special extra episode came to be. Uh, Emily and I have known each other for more than a decade. Definitely more than a decade. Yeah. Possibly 20 years now. No, it can't be that long. Maybe, maybe like 15. Yeah. 15 is 12 to 15. Yeah, yeah, something like that. Um, We met when we were baby booksellers, (laughs) working at different bookstores, I know. In different cities and different parts of the country. That's right, that's right. But uh, it was a friendship that was meant to be. And our paths have since, you know, gone all over the place. We did get to work together in Word Bookstore in New York City for a while. But now, obviously, Emily is a librarian. And... I saw her recently and we were talking about what was going on for us at work. And I mentioned this experiment to you and you were like, that's so funny because. Hey, yo, I wrote my my master's thesis about (laughs) algorithms and bias and online recommendation tools. So (laughs) uh, it seemed like maybe it would be a good thing for us to talk about. Yeah. So as y'all know, we're doing this experiment, right? We have the hand cell interviews with authors, and then we have our new recommendations show, which is coming in August, uh, Human versus Algorithm. And I think, you know, we've talked on the show before about how algorithms are biased. We've recommended some books around that when people ask. But since we are actually going to be actively interacting with algorithms, and the more that Emily and I talked about it, and then of course you sent me your thesis and I was reading through it and I was like, this is so interesting. Like we have to have Emily come onto the show and talk a little bit about what you learned. So if you, oh wait, before we do that, let us take a quick sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Sourcebooks Landmark. So King Solomon says something very interesting to his son before he dies, and that is, quote, don't let the white man take the house, end quote. These, as I just mentioned, are King Solomon's last words to his son as he dies. Now, all four Solomon siblings must return to North Carolina to save the kingdom, their ancestral home, and 200 acres of land from a development company. Told in alternating viewpoints, long after we are gone by Tara Shelton Harris, 
is a searing portrait of the power of family and letting go of things that no longer serve you, exploring the burden of familial expectations, the detriment of miscommunication, and the lessons and legacies we pass on to our children. It's an explosive and emotional story of four siblings, each fighting their own personal battle, because who isn't, who return home in the wake of their father's death. Make sure to check out Long After We Are Gone by Tara Shelton Harris. And thanks again to Sourcebooks Landmark for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press. So this next book is a really fun sounding mashup of different genres. There's a little time travel, a little romance, a little spy thriller action going on. So in the near future, a civil servant is offered the salary of her dreams and is shortly afterward told what project she'll be working on. A recently established government ministry is gathering quote unquote expats from across history to establish whether time travel is feasible for the body, but also for the fabric of space time. This is an exquisitely original and feverishly fun fusion of genres and ideas. The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley asks, what does it mean to defy history when history is living in your house? Colleen Bradley's answer is a blazing, unforgettable testament to what we owe each other in a changing world. It kind of gives Outlander meets Cloud Atlas or If the Time Traveler's Wife was written by Sally Rooney or Colson Whitehead. Make sure to check out The Ministry of Time by Colleen Bradley. And thanks again to Avid Reader Press for sponsoring this episode. Okay, so now if you will sort of give us like the top level explanation of your thesis, like why did you decide to work on this? What was the question you were trying to answer? So I... First, I want to clarify that it's yes. not specifically about algorithms or the nitty gritty of how they work, because that is not my area of expertise. Uh, it's really more of sort of a sociological or a cultural analysis of algorithms and other tools and uh, things that, that pertain specifically to book people. So I have an interest in data, love using it, but I don't have a background in it. Um, and interestingly, I feel like that that the roots of that actually come from when I was really little, when there mm. was kind of this unspoken message that you could either like the arts or you could like math and science, mm. but you weren't really supposed to like both. Um, and, you know, since I quite obviously was a huge reader and also loved music, it was pretty clear which path I should take. Mm. Um, and then when I got to college, I did a little more in the social sciences, which is a little a little bit of, uh, you know, kind of in the middle. But mm-hmm. um, but I didn't really ever get an opportunity to sort of marry the two. And I think that a lot has changed in the last 30 years. And it's not nearly so unheard of to kind of mix those together now. Um, so that said, um, I wanted to hone in on the ways on on ways to identify bias within the tools that we use every day. Um, and since most of us aren't on the way to becoming data scientists, right. <laughs> also offer possible ways to counterbalance that bias or find other tools that do a better job. Yeah. And you to like back up a second, you went from book selling to librarianship, not in like necessarily a straightforward way. No, absolutely not. So I can I can tell you a little bit about how I landed where I am in the NYPL, uh, the New York Public Library. Yeah. Um, so I 
kind of knew that I needed to to pivot a little bit away from bookselling, but the the most obvious uh, solution that I found was at the time to work for the retail bookshop in the New York Public Library's main building, uh, the Lions Building, as yes. many of you might know it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I was working in the retail shop there for a number of years, um, but realized that because of uh, the NYPL has a tuition reimbursement program, I could probably start my library degree. And I thought, you know, that's something that is of interest to me. So I kind of was able to have one foot in both worlds at the same time. Um, and so I went to Queens College and was able to get my degree in about two and a half years. Um, and then right after I got my degree, um, I a, a job position opened up that I actually had known about for a long time, somebody else filled it for a while, and I had always wanted this job um, mm. <laughs> in the reader services department. And so right when I finished my degree, actually, that's not even true. It was before I finished my degree. Um, I This job opened up and I applied for it and I got it. Yay. Um, and, <laughs> yay. And so it's in the reader services department, uh, which focuses specifically on readers advisory, which is recommendations uh, from librarians and making book lists and doing all sorts of things that I'm sure your listeners are pretty familiar with uh, in, in the online space. Yeah, we I know we have a bunch of librarians who listen to the show. Shout out to librarians. And, hey, uh, <laughs> and you know, I have seen notes from librarians like passing the show around the Internet as like an example of this is like what Reader's Advisory can look at, can look like, which is always extremely flattering to me because, you know, I hold librarians in high regard. Um, and so so but I, I think this is important to talk about just because, you know, whether or not we are experts in data science, which we are not. Um, I mean, everybody knows I love a spreadsheet, but that does not make me a data scientist. <laughs> um, and, you know, you're coming at it from this reader's advisory angle and an interest in numbers, but not an expertise. You know, we interact with these things all the time, every day, forever, right? And so I think that having any kind of understanding, you know, wherever we're starting, having an understanding and starting to ask these questions and poke at, you know, how they work and what they do a little bit is so important. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. They have such an impact on everybody's lives. Yeah. So, yeah. So, okay. So you were like, all right, so Reader's Advisory uses algorithms and I want to look at them. Yes. <laughs> so what um, did that entail? Yeah, so this is kind of jumping into some of the, the findings in a nutshell. Mm -hmm. um, and so I focused on Goodreads and Novelist, um, although it's hard to use two databases or two sort of sources that are really different. Um, I liked the contrast that they gave, but I will... I will say that Novelist, which if y'all don't know about it, you absolutely should, by the way, just a little plug here. It's an invaluable tool for librarians and a really fun toy for readers because <laughs> they catalog books with expected terms like subject, genre, location, but then also appeal terms that relate to tone, pace, storyline, writing style, mood, character, and theme. Um, so it's really fun to look up your favorite books and to see how they've cataloged them and to say, oh, wait a minute, I guess I do really like 
an atmospheric cerebral novel with messy characters or something you know (laughs) I Um, do like all of those things Emily I do (laughs) or if you happen to be a genre reader they have really great um designations for themes within genres Mm. um you know so like you gotta love a good enemies to lovers romance or uh or a, uh, a grumpy sunshine romance. That's yes. a new one I've just learned about. But so, um, you know, so all of these themes um, and, and terms are really fun. So you should check out Novelists. Your public library may have a subscription to it. Um, that's the best. That's how I access it. Um, so anyway, Novelists ended up being kind of the main focus because they actually have really good cataloging and terms that you can analyze and they're very um, transparent about those. Mm. So um, Goodreads on the other hand has a lot of user generated tags. So that's its own beast. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so I was able to use that a little bit, but not a lot. Um, so I analyzed all the terms to an assigned title. I had a, a, a list of, I think 25 that I was researching um, as well as identity characteristics of the creators to see if I could observe trends about what kinds of terms and how many terms were assigned to male versus female authors, white versus BIPOC writers. Um, and I found that books by BIPOC writers had slightly higher number of tags and they were more clearly likely to be related to race or gender. Hmm. So this touches on the idea of what is so, quote, normal that it doesn't even need to be tagged. Hmm. And the answer in our culture is whiteness and maleness. Hmm. And that in itself is problematic. Um, So, you know, the question is, should you know, should whiteness have a tag as well as blackness? Um, you know, should, what, what should these catalogers do in terms right, of, um, right. you know, so, so that was, that was one thing that I was kind of looking into. Another is a thing that I called silo bias, can't even say that, silo <laughs> bias, where books by marginalized writers are tagged as such, and compared to books by other marginalized writers much more frequently than they are compared to books by writers in various dominant groups. Hmm. So books by women are compared to other books by women, but not to books by men that often. Um, Books by lots of different, you know, BIPOC writers. Mm -hmm. So, you know, books by a Black author might be compared to a Latinx author, but uh, typically there'll be a lot of overlap in terms of who they're compared to. Hmm. Um, And so if you think about it this way, the New York Times a couple of years ago had a study that came out that said that 90 percent, that even though diversity in publishing is kind of getting a little bit better, maybe 90 yeah. percent um, <laughs> um, of books published in the United States are still written by white people. So that means you know, if you think of that, that is a large globe, a large hmm. sphere. And then 10 percent, the other 10% of books published are written by all people of color. <laughs> um, and you think about that as like the small little tennis, tennis ball sized sphere. Mm. Um, and if you're only comparing people within that tennis ball sized sphere to each other, pretty limited. Yeah. Don't you think? So that's what I'm calling silo bias, um, which is sort of keeping separate, you know, this one certain kind of voice yeah. um, and not comparing it to the mainstream. 
So that's something that I was able to observe in a couple of different places. Yeah, that's A, messed up. B, fascinating. (laughs) C, like super interesting to think about how like, okay, so for example, you referenced, you know, grumpy sunshine as a type of romance. So when you Mm -hmm. think about that, like what you might get is if, as you said, an author of color writes a grumpy sunshine romance, it's maybe less likely to get tagged with those tags. It might just be like romance and then like own voices, for example. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. somebody looking for grumpy sunshine will have a harder time finding it. Yeah. Yep, that's an, that's entirely possible. <laughs> um, and let's see, did I get? I've got yeah. So so I did mention that you know um, that the like white writers tended to get tags that related more to sort of the style of writing, mm-hmm. and BIPOC writers didn't get those nearly as often. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's 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 really interesting, you know, and it's certainly not um, as much bias is. It's usually not intentional, right? Right. <laughs> um, you know, and and especially when when something is is related to and based on algorithms, yeah. Um, you know, it's kind of baked in. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, if the inputs that are coming into the algorithm, right have bias, then the outputs that come from the algorithm are going to recreate that bias. Well, and humans are the one putting in the input. So of course, you know, humans have bias. Like that's just a truth. It doesn't matter who you are. You have biases. Yeah, exactly. Um, And then there was one more thing that that I looked at in my research, uh, which were read-alike suggestions. Yes. And what I call linkage terms. So um, terms that the seed title, the original one, uh, and the read-alike suggestion have in common. And so with that, I created word cloud visualizations that are really fun um, (laughs) (laughs) for each title to see which terms occurred most frequently. And a word cloud is, you know, when when some words are really big and that's because they've occurred repeatedly and some words are small, which means they only occurred once or twice. And so for BIPOC writers, the most commonly used linkage terms, so the reasons read-alike suggestions were suggested, Hmm. um, were highly likely to relate to their marginalized status. So as you mentioned, own voices, culturally Mm -hmm. diverse, African-American fiction, uh, whereas books by white white writers were more likely to have linkage terms terms that related to other appeals like writing style tone or character so that's what I was alluding to Mm. earlier Mm -hmm. um you know so so that's also sort of an intentional decision on um you know what parts of the writing to focus on right right So. so and just to like you know get a little more specific, obviously on Goodreads, all of these terms are user generated, right? And we all know if we've ever been on Goodreads that like sometimes people will like say the same thing, but phrase it slightly differently or like, Mm -hmm. you know, use Mm -hmm. a different spelling. And so then you have 6,000 tags that are all basically saying the same thing. Um, And so that's really obvious how that happens. For something like novelist, I'm assuming this is like a catalogers job. I know that there are such things as catalog librarians. Is that like who does this kind of work? Yeah, like they've definitely got their own their own crew of librarians, and they they work on um, you know sort of developing their their 
curated collection of titles and the um, and the tags that that go with it. Um, and in addition to um, the sort of algorithmically generated read-alike suggestions, they mm-hmm. also have um, various contractors and librarians who sort of do hand-selected mm. um, uh, read-alike suggestions as well. Mm-hmm. So they they have a sort of a two-part system. Some of them are algorithms, and those you can always tell because, one, they're not signed by a name. Right. Um, and two, they um, they will say something like, both of these books are, you know, contemporary romances that have, you know, interracial characters and right. grumpy sunshine. Right, right. <laughs> you know, so, you, so you can just tell that, you know, they, they've pulled some of the terms and said both of these books have them. Gotcha. Um, whereas if an individual is creating it, that's when there's there is definitely some room for um, a little bit of serendipity there, a little bit mm-hmm. of unexpectedness, but all of those read-alike comparisons are vetted by um, by the editors, like the content editors at Novelist. So, um, so you could, if essentially, if you submitted one and it wasn't that great of a s- comparison, or you know they didn't think that it was up to up right. to snuff, then then it wouldn't get approved. Gotcha. Gotcha. Um, There's a couple layers of, of, of work going on here. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But you know, all of that is sort of half those read alike suggestions are happening after the cataloging has already Mm, happened, mm, you know, and like mm. they, they also do a lot of work. They've recently updated uh, some of their terminology uses and Mm. um, you know, and, and are uh you know, working towards being more specific in terms of, um, you know, author characteristics Mm. and how they identify and, um, you know, being as is sort of the trend in terms of recognizing bias is to be more specific rather than less specific and, you know, using umbrella terms, uh, trying to avoid using umbrella terms when possible in right. favor of something that is more descriptive and more specific in terms of an identity. Right. Because you don't want to just be lumping lots of different people into the same category. Yeah. Because yeah. they share that, like a single generic, you know, they yeah. are people of color. Like that's a really reductive yeah. way to group people. Right. Absolutely. Agreed. And that is honestly, that's the weakness in my thesis because mm. it was a uh, master's thesis that I had you know a semester to do right. and it was in the middle of a pandemic yeah. and so you know I I ended up having to do some of that lumping together that in, mm-hmm. in, a, in a more rigorous study I wouldn't have done right so. right yeah it's good yeah. to good to mention I mean I think it's also worth mentioning and I know this um just because I have so many friends who are librarians at this point in my life but you have been part of this and obviously your thesis is directly speaking to this there are tons of conversations going on in librarianship about yeah like what is on the shelves what do we display right like how are we cataloging mm-hmm. things yeah yeah no there's there's absolutely a lot of discussion you know and and there's certainly a lot of room for individual librarians and branches and systems and various things to um, to sort of highlight what's most important to them. But right. on the other hand, there's there's also a lot of discussion about the obligation to, um, you know, 
make sure that there's something for all of your patrons. Yes. Um, as opposed to just specific ones with a particular interest or a mm-hmm. particular belief set. Um, and so, yeah, that's definitely a conversation that's happening. And, you know, librarians, you say, well, I feel like I have to have this problematic book here for reasons right. X, Y, and Z. And then the the sort of answer sometimes is, yes, we can have it, but we don't need to promote it. Right, right. <laughs> you yeah, know? I know a lot of bookstores are are also, you know, having those conversations. It's, and, you know, personal weeding of my library, This is these are considerations I have. Um, I think yeah. every reader is grappling with this. I do want to also point out, so that though we've been talking specifically about novelists here, with Goodreads, you're just at the mercy of crowdsourcing, which is, you know, you have no idea yeah. who's doing what, who's tagging what, and yeah. you know the vast majority of what those tags are going to be like. So it's it's a little bit. It's obviously more of a free for all. So yeah. okay, and and I, and one other thing I'll mention about um, about Goodreads is that when I was looking at because they also have a if you like this you may also like that yes yes um, you know sort of a string of of recommendations. And those, I had a really hard time figuring out rhyme or reason for them (laughs) (laughs) because some of them seemed fine in terms of their recommendations and some of them seemed odd, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I guess is is my professional official term for it. Yes, Um, You know, and it's like sometimes it might be, you know, maybe it's a self-published title that has a really huge, you know, fan following right. and so therefore like that book is going to show up you know somewhere that I wouldn't expect it to mm. or um, sometimes I would look at a title and especially if it was like a bestseller a couple years ago um, you know there would be like a lot of the read-alike suggestions or you might also like this were other bestsellers from the same time period mm. And so that just like led me to think that there's there is something sales based. And I mean, it's it's kind of no secret that right. Goodreads is now owned by Amazon. So mm-hmm. clearly they likely get a lot of their um, data and their feeds from a lot of that sales data. So there right. was something that felt pretty, pretty uh, sales driven, sort of deep under the surface. But um, and I'll mention this a little bit later, you know, it, it's there's no way to know what's going into their right. algorithm. Right, right. right. All right. Well, before we get into the weeds on that, let (laughs) us take another quick sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds. College student Blake and her girlfriend have one goal. Join the exclusive sorority that promises connections to a network of trailblazing women of color. Now, Ella's acceptance is a sure thing. She's a daughter of a Serena Society alum. After all, Blake, on the other hand, lacks Ella's pedigree and her confidence. Luckily, though really unluckily, she finds courage at the bottom of a liquor bottle. When she drinks, she's bold and funny, and as pledging intensifies, so does Blake's drinking. Ella assures her that she's fine, partying hard is what it takes, but with her future on the line, Blake must decide how far she's willing to go to achieve glittering dreams of success. Now, just so you know, Jazz Hammonds is the 2023 winner of the critic Scott King John Steptoe Award for New Talent for We Deserve Monuments, and We Deserve Monuments was an Amazon Best Books of the Year and Barnes & Noble Best Books of the Year for 2023, so suffice to say, y'all should check this new one out. Thanks again to Thirsty by Jazz Hammonds for sponsoring this episode. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Gallery Books. So Anna Green thought she was marrying Liam West for access to subsidized family housing while at UCLA, which is an interesting reason to marry someone, but you know, in this economy. So anyway, she signed divorce papers when the graduation caps were tossed and she thought she was done. Eh, she wasn't. Three years later, Anna is a starving artist living paycheck to paycheck while West is a Stanford professor. Now he is part of a conglomerate. His family owns this mega grocery store chain. He's not interested in working for them, but he is interested in those greenbacks, honey, that come in the form of a $100 million inheritance. To get it, he has to be married for five years. That's where our girl Anna comes back into play. So the two will fake a marriage, but as he gets to know her and gets to appreciate the feisty, foul mouth, paint splattered girl that she is, he'll begin to wonder if the money is worth the love of his life. Pick up The Paradise Problem by Christina Lauren to find out if it is. And thanks again to Gallery Books for sponsoring this episode okay so i'm trying to decide let's talk about that well no let's talk about that later first let's talk about so your thesis is specifically about librarianship and um, how librarians especially in readers advisory you use these tools what do you wish non-professional readers understood about these recommendation algorithms well that they are not your friends. <laughs> and I don't mean that in a nefarious way, although maybe I do. Um, <laughs> what I mean is that they don't know you like your friends and your family do, and like your favorite librarian or bookseller might come to know you uh, mm-hmm. and give recommendations based on that. So they quote, know you, these algorithms, based on very specific blips of data and they are far from perfect, especially when it com- comes to something like reading tastes. Right. So that's that's the main thing I think it's important to remember is that, you know, there are definitely things that they can be useful for. And mm-hmm. especially, especially in this age of information where there is just so much, so much, so much data everywhere. Yeah. Like an algorithm can pare down that data. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so mm-hmm. it has its use, but it definitely requires us to remember um, that it doesn't know all the answers. Right, right. Well, and that it wants to give us specific answers more than mm-hmm. other answers for mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. reasons of whoever programmed it. Like they might yeah. have good intentions. They might have sales intentions, as you said mm-hmm. before. Um, so, yeah, there's all kinds of reasons why something might pop up. Well, I think this gets into uh, my next question, which is, okay, so we're going to be utilizing recommendation algorithms very deliberately on Mm -hmm. our human versus algorithm experiment. So like, for those of us who are going to be hosts, you know, I do think it's interesting, like, what should we be keeping in mind as we go to source recommendations with the understanding that like, we we're hoping they're not going to be as good as as the personalized <laughs> recommendation but still like what should we be keeping in mind sure um i think that you know i think that you humans <laughs> <laughs> i think that the humans in this experiment may be able to bring in more influences mm. and streams of knowledge than could possibly be programmed into an algorithm mm-hmm. especially on a commerce platform um, right. but there are other recommendation places, um, which like, I don't know if you've specifically set 
where your algorithm is going to come from. So that's Um, an interesting question. I, my plan was, and this is like early information for all of the listeners out there. My plan is to offer like a, a short list of suggestions to the hosts, but to like, let them pick. And I don't, Mm, I'm also mm -hmm. not going to specify depending on which source, how you, how you pick, which recommendation, like, I'm like going to let people, but you're going to, the hosts are going to have to explain to us what they did and why. So there will be an explanation for like, okay, here's where I went and here's Mm -hmm. how I decided which one of these, you know, read alikes or whatever I got recommended by to pick from this algorithm. Uh, Mm -hmm. So we will know, but I Mm -hmm. am, you know, Mm -hmm. I think I personally am going to play around with story graph because I I think story graph is really, yeah, story graph (laughs) is really interesting. I mean, it's far from perfect, right? No platform is perfect, but I do see very new. It's super new. So they are still building their data sets, but like they have, I didn't know they were called appeal terms, but they have these appeal terms baked into it. Right. And like, this actually is good um, motivation for me on my secret account to start adding. Like they're like, Oh, what Mm. terms do you want to add? And I often skip that. I'm like, I don't know what that is, but now I'm like, Oh, I should be adding those. Like I should be helping (laughs) the algorithm grow. Right. So anyway, Mm. I digress. Mm. So, so, so what, so when we're like out here playing with algorithms for these recommendations yeah like I guess it'll be different depending on what platforms we're on what we should keep in mind I think so yeah um you know because I I definitely found ones that were more useful and ones that were less useful and you know Storygraph is is definitely interesting because it 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 sort of weighs heavy on those appeal terms but most specifically the ones that are kind of more about mood Mm -hmm. and 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 tone Mm -hmm. um you know and sort of uh, pace maybe like how fast it yes. reads or how slow it reads yes um, and so you know it's 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 really nice to have and that is especially I will say that's especially helpful with fiction yes um, you know I think that um, historically things like Library of Congress headings and we <laughs> headings uh, have done a real disservice to fiction like yeah. the subject headings that are listed as like you know, oh gosh, I liked The Vanishing Half. And it's like, oh, well, you might like another book that's, uh, you know, about a singer in Los Angeles. And you're like, that's one character for one part of the book. (laughs) But it's like listed as a subject heading. It's like, oh, you liked this book. You might like other books about twin sisters. Right. (laughs) You know, it's like, well, that wasn't really the part of it that I was really drawn to. (laughs) So subject headings aren't usually that helpful when it comes to fiction. They might be, but usually you're not, you're not looking for a subject. You're looking for a feeling or a, you know, a type of character maybe. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think that those appeals, you know, are really useful. So, you know, maybe it's, Maybe it's, it, I have found things are different for nonfiction than fiction. And oh, certain, sources, certain sources might be more useful for things in nonfiction than yeah. otherwise. So, um, yeah. so yeah, there's, it, there's definitely a lot out there. I guess that's no surprise. <laughs> <laughs> no doubt. Yeah, I think it'll be super interesting to see what hosts choose and why. Like that'll be, that's going to be one of the fun parts of this experiment is seeing what that ends up looking like and hmm. I, I'm, you know, I feel like I could put good money on everybody being approaching it a slightly different way in the same way that like we all approach personalized recommendations a little bit differently. Right. So. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And 
Yeah, I love that. I yeah, I think that even even professional book recommenders approach their recommendations differently. Oh yeah, um, yeah. you know, and and like one of the conversations about um, neutrality in librarianship and whether it exists or is possible <laughs> or is even desirable, mm. um, you know, is uh, you know, do we have an obligation to recommend exactly what a person says that they want? Mm. Or do we have an obligation to, um, you know, uplift marginalized voices? Or do we have an obligation to push a reader's boundaries in some way, Mm -hmm. um, as opposed to reinforce what they already know? Right. And so like that, that's definitely a question and something that I think about regularly in terms Mm -hmm. of what I'm recommending. And that's part of why I always try to recommend free books for somebody um, Mm. because that allows me to have a little bit of, of flexibility in terms of, um, yeah, I I have a whole strategy. I won't, I won't go into today, (laughs) but, but, you know, I think that it's, uh, it's useful to be able to recommend something that's exactly what they think they want and yes. something that's a bit outside of that yes. um, which can help to recreate some of that serendipity that people love when browsing right um so yeah this is one of the things that i mean especially you know long-term listeners will know we will occasionally go very off on a tangent with a request and be like, so I know this isn't exactly what you asked for, but, uh, and then have a big long story about how they should read it anyway. (laughs) Um, And sometimes we're like, okay, this is exactly what you're looking for. And so, yeah, I mean, we've done everything along that spectrum, I think on this show in the past and (laughs) my money is again on us continuing to do that in the future. Um, Okay. One more question about algorithms for you. Can we, like as readers, as consumers, as whatever we are in our daily lives, can we help make them better? Like, is are there things that we can do? I mean, I guess, obviously, I can fill out those story graph appeal terms, right? So that's like one very specific example. Sure, sure. Yeah, I wish I, wish I had a more concrete answer for this question because algorithms work because of huge amounts of data. Mm. <laughs> So changing one thing that one person does isn't likely to change all that much unless you are somebody who creates them or works for the companies that, you know, make them ubiquitous. Mm -hmm. Um, So in her book, Weapons of Math Destruction by Kathy O'Neill, so she writes that one of the worst things about algorithms is their opacity, what she calls the black box. So they're de- many of them are deemed proprietary by companies and can therefore be kept secret. So we can't tell what inputs algorithms use to determine which students are likely to perform poorly on standardized tests, which formerly incarcerated persons are likely to reoffend, or to suggest books which you might like based on others that you bought. Mm. So not being able to tell what the inputs are, it makes it really difficult to know how to tackle that. Right. Um, so I think that one way is supporting and reaching out to smaller companies rather than the huge behemoths who own the internet. Mm. Um, because you might be able to one, get more information about some of those things and, um, and have an impact on how they do things or at least ask the questions. Right. And also fighting for algorithms to be open source might be another place to start. 
Yeah. Or you can do kind of what I mentioned at the beginning to come back full circle. Um, You can start with learning to see bias where it already exists, Mm -hmm. both in yourself and in the tools you use every day, and then work to counterbalance. So, for example, if I'm with a reader who loves a specific white male thriller writer, and novelist read-alike suggestions are all other white male thriller writers, which has definitely happened to yes. me <laughs> a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I can counterbalance that bias, which could be the algorithm. It might be in ourselves. It might be in the publishing industry or might be all three. Mm-hmm. We can counterbalance by suggesting at least one book by a woman, at least one book by a person of color, in addition to the suggested real-like titles. So mm. that's something for folks who are sort of in a position to regularly be recommending books, or even like you're talking to your parents or your mom mm-hmm. has a book club, you know, like mm-hmm. you can recommend the like most obvious, you know, thing that's on Good Morning America, but you right. can also suggest a few things that might not be what they think they want, but maybe they do. Yeah. So. All yeah. right. Well, that's... I like that, though. That's that is I mean, yes, we can't individually fix these systemic problems. Right. Like that's just true of so many things in life right now. There's there's only so much we as individuals can do. But being aware, asking the questions and then doing what we can in our own lives is definitely uh, the way to start. Absolutely. Agreed with you there. Yeah. All right. So last but not least, I have to ask you, what are you reading right now? (laughs) Absolutely. Always the question of the hour. Yeah. Um, So I just finished a debut novel called What We Do, We Do in the Dark by Michelle Hart. I read it in 24 hours. This is the first time I've done that in a long time. Mm. And to be honest, I kind of thought I wasn't going to like it because I like read the premise and was just like, oh gosh, I've read this before. Right. Like I've, I've definitely heard of the like, you know, undergrad student has affair with professor trope. Mm. Like, yes, I've heard it all before, but I was, I was surprised and impressed with this. Um, It kind of takes the understated language and emotions of like a Katie Kitamura book mm-hmm. um, and then it adds in a dash of Patricia Highsmith's The Price of Salt mm-hmm. minus toxicity and the drama <laughs> cerebral coming of age um, that that ended up really taking me in it felt like a good summer read even though it definitely deals with heavy stuff mm-hmm So that's the fiction that I've read most recently. I'm usually reading three or four things at once. So one other one that I'll tell you about is coming out in September um, in nonfiction. It's a forthcoming memoir called Solito by Javier Zamora. And he's a man who made the harrowing journey from Central America to the United States as a young child. But what I'm finding so intriguing so far about this is the voice. Um, It, it, actually reads like fiction in a strange way he's telling it from the perspective of his eight-year-old self Mm. we get his boredom of living with his grandparents while he waits for his parents to send for him because they've gone before him uh his unbridled excitement when he finally gets the call his limited understanding of the complexities and dangers that surround him traveling from Central America, like with a coyote to the Mm. the United States. 
Um, and he's really propelling the reader forward with him uh, as an eight-year-old rather than looking back with the full benefit of hindsight and maturity, which is what you often get in memoirs. So mm. I'm just, I'm, I'm not, I'm, you know, maybe halfway through, but I'm just finding it really interesting um, and compelling the, that that decision to put the perspective where he did. So yeah, how like intense. I mean, it would be intense no matter what, but that's extra yeah. double plus intense. Yeah. Yes. yeah, that's that's an appeal term, right? Extra double plus intense. That's definitely uh, yeah. Yeah, I think I've seen that one. If not, it should be. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. So I, you've, you have like a lot going on in your life right now. So I really appreciate <laughs> you taking the time oh, to come is, talk to us. This is a breath of fresh air. I'm, I'm absolutely excited to uh, to follow the experiment. I can't see, wait to see if it's uh, if it's Watson or Ken Jennings that's going to win. Yeah. <laughs> I, my money is on the humans. Honestly. Obviously, I have a stake in that, but I do think it's going to be super interesting. So. so I will definitely be listening. And uh, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. Um, if people are interested in like, you know, following you on the Internet, is that a thing they can do? That's totally a thing they can do. Um, my handle on Twitter and Instagram is Corpus Libris. I'll spell it for you. It's at C-O-R-P-U-S-L-I-B-R-I-S. And that's where I'm on the internets. Awesome. Awesome. Emily has cats. I'm just going to tell you all. So, you know, in (laughs) case you needed extra incentive to follow her. Cats and books. That's mainly what it is. And that's right. That's our cone. Yeah, that's our brand. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let's see. Uh, thanks to you for coming. Thank you all for listening. I hope that you will tell us what your thoughts are about this experiment. Email us getbooked at bookriot.com. Um, as always, you can get human generated book recommendations at bookriot.com. You can listen to our other human generated podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen. And yeah, we'll talk to you next time. Bye.